So who needs a nap? A nap some. And, and I mean, come on, some of you, it's, it has nothing to do with just that we lost an hour of sleep last night. Who just kind of in general always needs a nap? Are you one of those people? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at Bucky's, otherwise known as the greatest store on planet Earth, right? Um, and I saw a shirt because, you know, Bucky's just has everything you need, a shirt, beef jerky, a lazy Susan for your dinner table, a fire pit, ethanol-free gasoline, a smoked brisket. It's everything you need, a store. And I saw this shirt. I took a picture of it. I sent it to my sweet wife, Emily. I said, I have found your shirt. This is the essence of who you are. Uh, it, it defines your identity and your true heart. And the shirt said, I love Jesus and naps. Now, I think she loves me and the boys, but I know that she loves Jesus and naps. In fact, I have a shirt for it. Does anybody else love Jesus and naps? Anybody else? Let's see. Let's go right there. There we go. I have no idea what size it is. You take it back to Bucky's, get you some beef jerky while you're there. Um, have you ever noticed... Um, uh, well, first, let's let me say good morning to you. My name is Carter McKinnis. I'm a lead pastor at, here at Mountaintop and really honored to be worshiping with you. If you are watching uh, from your home, it's, it's great to be with you. And I've noticed this trend, and sometimes I've kind of found it in myself, and maybe you found this to be true about yourself that, or friends and family, that the answer to the question when someone says, how are you doing, is so often, I'm Tired. You find yourself saying that a lot? How you doing? I'm so tired. I'm tired. Like, why are we so tired? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why are so, do you think that being tired was a part of God's plan? Do you think God created us, all these 8 billion image bearers, all of us made in his image and just said, I'm going to make these people and I'm just going to wear them out. They're going to be exhausted. Let me ask you a question. Is God ever tired? So is being tired a part of the image God created in each of us? I think I have a theory of why we're so tired. And I've, this is, listen, if you're like, oh man, this is stepping on my toes. I'm with you. Like I had... I found myself a few years ago just feeling like I said this all the time, so I just have worked really hard to almost never answer this way because I found this to be true. I just always answer like I'm tired. And I think the reason is we're chasing something. Like we're, we're chasing something. Young people are chasing online engagement and followers. We're chasing a career. We're chasing aspiration, success. We're chasing that promotion that we've been after. Like, we got to kill it at work. So we, to the boss notices, so we are the top salesperson, so we get that promotion. We're chasing kids all over town with practices and lessons and recitals and ball games. We're chasing relationships. We're chasing um, experiences. We're chasing growth. And there's a sense in our culture, that if you're sitting still, you're losing ground, right? Because you got to work hard. You got to grind, rise and grind, baby. 
You got to chase it. And the idea is that if, if we'll ever catch it, right, whatever it is we're chasing, if we'll catch it finally, if we'll catch the promotion, if we'll finally get the job, if we'll finally get the raise, if our kids will finally get the college scholarship, if we'll finally get the accolades, well, then, then we can rest. And, of course, you find that there's just another race. Right? You just entered another one. You just chase something else. You chase early retirement. You chase grandkids. You just enter another race. And religion often feels that way. Um, and it can be a part of our fatigue. And maybe you've felt that way about religion, that you've just spent years trying to be good. That's, that's kind of all faith and religion has been for you, of just chasing something, right? Am I reading my Bible enough? Did I read it enough? Am I going to church enough? Are we involved enough? Did I serve long enough at serve day yesterday? Did I leave 30 minutes early? Was that okay? Am I, are we giving enough? Am I praying long enough? Am I cussing too much? Am I coveting my neighbor's new car too much? Like, where's the line? Essentially, here's the question that we often ask in religion, and we feel this in ourselves: Is this good enough? That's what we're chasing like in our secular lives. Like, is this good enough? Am I parenting good enough? Am I doing the marriage thing good enough? Am I doing the career thing good enough? But when it comes to our faith that we really want to get right, this is the question, is this good enough? You ever ask yourself that question? Is the Bible, the prayer, the church attendance, the giving, it's like, Lord, is it good enough? Am I acceptable? Do you receive me now? Am I good enough? Jesus lived in a world where there were lots of different ideas about what was good enough. And that world was a place called Galilee. And uh, I've got a, a map here to show you a little bit about, about Galilee. Though Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is this little town outside of Jerusalem. And at Christmas story, you've probably heard about Bethlehem. But he was raised about 60 miles north of Jerusalem in a little community called Nazareth that was in a region called Galilee, and Galilee was more country than Judea, the region where Bethlehem and Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the city center, it's where the temple was, uh, there was lots of business, in, but Gal Galilee was more country, and Jesus did a good bit of his ministry in this little lake city, this port city named Capernaum. That, that's where he did a lot of his ministry, that's where he did a lot of teaching. Now, Galilee was a lot different than Judea. Uh, though Galilee was under Roman rule, uh, because all of Israel was under Roman rule, it, it, was, it was much different than Judea. You would not have found a, uh, a, uh, a Roman occupying presence in Galilee. In fact, the Romans had kind of abdicated, abdicated authority to Herod Antipas in Galilee. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the one that was king over Israel when Jesus is born. He's the one that the wise men come to. 
And so the Romans, had, so you just wouldn't have walked around Galilee seeing Roman centurions. You go to Judea, you go to Jerusalem in the city center, you'd have seen a lot more Romans. There wasn't a lot of Roman presence in Galilee. Now, there was some Greek presence because it was near waterway. It was an international trading kind of area. So in Capernaum, you would have seen a little bit of Greek culture, but the primary culture would have been the deep-rooted Jewish culture. So because of that, Galilee became a place of very deep religious beliefs. In fact, Galilee put out more religious leaders than any other, Rome, than any other Jewish province. So the, oftentimes we think of Jerusalem as kind of the, and the temple as kind of the center of religious life in Israel, but Galilee, the culture in Galilee was much more Jewish, much more religious, much more devout. These were country Jewish folks, good old, good old down-to-earth God-fearers. It would not have been common for Many people in Galilee to have large chunks of the Hebrew scriptures memorized. That was just a part of who they were. They were deeply religious. So uh, the reason that they had to memorize it is because they didn't own their own copy. It wasn't like you and me. No one, they didn't carry around a Bible. They didn't even have books. They didn't have a printing press. And every, so they had scrolls. It's not like everyone had their own private copy of the handwritten scrolls that were maybe transcribed and, and copied. They didn't have that. They had to memorize it. And this was a part of their education. So this is what's so hard for you and, you and I to, to understand about the world. And this, that's so important to, to get before we read this scripture um, in Matthew. Because this is the world that Matthew is writing to. Uh, Matthew was a Galilean. He was a Galilean, so he saw the world through these eyes. And in this series, we're studying Scripture passages that are only found in the Gospel of Matthew. These are stories about Jesus or teachings from Jesus that only Matthew records. And I think we're going to find out why Matthew, this tax collector from Galilee, who had grown up Jewish but sort of left the faith early, I think we're going to find out why this, this teaching was one that, that he especially made a point to take note of. In their world, there was no such thing as like school the way you and I think about it. The only education was religious education. That was it. And it was under the authority and the leadership of rabbis, of Jewish rabbis. That was the, the whole point of their education system was to learn the Hebrew scriptures or the Torah if you hear that language, I'm going to say that word a lot, the Torah, meaning the law, that's just kind of the Jewish word for the law, and that typically means the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then there was kind of the rest of the scriptures, the historical teachings, the poetic, the prophetic teachings, were all the great prophets. So at about age five, same time we start school about, right, about kindergarten age, kids would begin learning the scriptures and they might go to the synagogue and learn from some religious teachers and religious rulers to learn the the scriptures when they were uh, when they were about 10 years old they would begin learning what was called the mishnah 
the Mishnah was the oral tradition of the Torah. So they would begin learning by repetition the law. So that was, that was part of their, so their goal was from 10 to 15 that they would have memorized large chunks of the Bible. You think, I mean, you think you're like worried about, is my Bible study long enough? I mean, they had to memorize it because they didn't have their own copy. They didn't have anything they could look up. The only thing that they could go to was their memory. So this was a part of their teaching, this, this aura, oral Torah by repeating it over and over. At 15, they would begin learning what was called the Talmud. Now, this is the part, this little green line, where a lot of kids pretty much age out or graduate from education. At 15, if they didn't show a lot of promise, um, they just weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer. They didn't come from the right family. They were a little more blue collar. They would most likely go back to whatever the family business was. Were they shepherds? Were they farmers? Were they fishermen? Were they carpenters? Were they stonemasons? Whatever it is they did, they would go back to it about age 15, and they would have had a kind of a foundation of religious teaching. They would have memorized large chunks of the, of the Torah, but that was it. The Talmud was a different thing. The Talmud was a different thing. The Talmud was the interpretations of the law. It was one thing to memorize the law, but it was another thing to interpret exactly what it meant. So let me explain this to you. So think about one command that we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, what did it mean? What constituted work? I mean, there were 613 laws, but there were thousands, thousands, literally, of Talmuds, of rabbinic interpretations. Now, not every religious leader had these interpretations. Some, and if you read the New Testament, you'll see some are described as just teachers of the law. Teachers of the law only just taught what the law said. They would have been those people that would have taught the 10 to 15-year-olds. But there were some rabbis who had what was called the esmika. And the esmika was almost like a, a special ordination uh, that, that basically, here's what they were. It meant they had authority. It meant that they had learned under another rabbi and that they had kind of now been ordained with a special authority to not just teach what the law said, but to interpret all the different minute details of the law. Now, there's this time that Jesus is teaching, and it said he speaks as one who has authority, even though he had not studied under anyone else. What they're saying is like, wow, listen to this guy. He teaches like he's got the esmika. Now, when a disciple showed promise, maybe came from the right family, was really sharp, a disciple would find a rabbi whose esmika, whose teaching, whose authority, whose interpretations that he respected, and he would say, I want to become your Talmud, and that was just the Hebrew word for disciple. 
I want to follow you. And this didn't mean just like I want to learn from you. I want to follow your way of life. I want to become like you. And, and I want to take on your way of interpreting all these 613 laws to all their thousands of details. And this is why this is important. And I know that's been like the most Jewish history you've ever sat through. So why this is important? Because this passage from Jesus won't make any sense to you if you don't understand that culture that Matthew was writing into in Galilee. A disciple, when he would study under a rabbi, would take on the rabbi's yoke. That's what it meant. If I'm going to follow your way, then I'm taking on the yoke as a disciple of the teacher. So Matthew is writing it to a very Jewish audience, to a very religious community in Galilee. And many of the people in Galilee are burdened under the heavy yoke of the rabbis in this very religious community. So many teachers had taken the 613 laws to a holy nother level. Let me explain it this way. So this was, this was a common kind of understanding. The, I mentioned the one about honoring the Sabbath, and we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Now, that meant more than Chick-fil-A was closed on Sundays. Their Sabbath was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. That's the Jewish Sabbath. So what does it mean to work? Uh, some rabbis, part of their their esmika, their authority in, interpreta- in, in interpreting that, said that you couldn't cook on the Sabbath. So that meant no cooking. So that means you had to all the food, all the food preparation had to be done before Friday sundown if you wanted to eat on Saturday. Some said this is crazy that you couldn't light a candle on Sabbath. That was considered work. Starting a fire. Here was the crazy thing: you could hire a Gentile to light a candle for you. You just couldn't do it yourself. This is a this is a tricky one. You could only walk two thirds of a mile. That was considered like just a leisurely stroll. But if I walked over two-thirds of a mile, I had worked. Now, can you imagine? You think you have worried about if your Bible study was long enough or if your prayer time was enough or if you're attending worship enough. You think you have worried about that. If, can you imagine? Can you imagine asking yourself, Gosh, I don't know, was it three-quarters of a mile to their house or two-thirds? Did I walk a hundred meters too far? And have I now sinned gravely against God? Can you imagine the burden that they were constantly under of, is this good enough? And the rabbi that I'm following says that this is okay, so I'm doing it. But the rabbi over there in the other neighborhood, he says I shouldn't do that. So that means he thinks I'm sinning. Their whole, their whole idea from, for righteousness, their whole idea about sin depended on their interpretations of all of these laws. Can you imagine the weight and the burden that every person in that community carried around with all these different interpretations about what it meant to be right with God, what it meant to be obedient, and worrying, is this good enough? And in the middle of that culture, right at the very beginning of his ministry to that community in Galilee, when the crowd had started to gather around Jesus, the sick, the lame, the outcast, Probably the people that didn't make it past the age of 15 in education. 
Jesus looks at them and he says, in Matthew chapter 11, come to me. Come to me. This is radical and and controversial because in Jesus' day, who asked who when it came to the rabbi and the disciple? The disciple asked the rabbi. They asked permission to follow the rabbi, but not in Jesus' world. Jesus looks at the whole ragtag bunch, and he says, hey, all of you, come to me. This is interesting. There's other times in the New Testament that Jesus says, if anyone would come after me in a call to discipleship, this is the only time in the whole New Testament, this one quote, the only time that Jesus says, come to me, come to me. It's so intimate. It's a different way of thinking. He's he's on the spot. He, He just says that in me, in relationship with me is where the answer resides and where normally it was only well-educated boys who could go past the age of 15 in their religious studies and in their discipleship, Jesus looks at a crowd of all kinds of folks and he says something pretty amazing. You're invited. You're invited. This is part of the radical message of Jesus. And it's still the message of Jesus that you don't have to have parts of the Bible memorized. You're invited. No matter if you grew up going to Sunday school, if you've never been to church in your life, you're invited. No matter how long your quiet time this morning was or if you have never, ever had one and don't even know what a quiet time is but a weird thing that Christians talk about. You're invited. Whether you are the popular kid or the nerd in school, you're invited. No matter your family history or your past, you're invited. No matter your addictions or your criminal record, you're invited. No matter your relationship status, you're invited. No matter your ethnicity, your race, your family of origin, your income, your hometown, you are invited. That's why... One of the things we say at our church is that we invite and equip people to follow Jesus. This is so core to our DNA at Mountaintop because we want the whole, this is what we do. We invite people to follow Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus looked at that whole crowd and he's like, hey, you guys, you're invited. So we just figure all of Birmingham's invited too. Jesus follows that up. He says, come to me, all who are weary And if you only knew, Jesus, and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me. You don't have to chase anymore. Aren't you tired of the rat race? Come to me. The competition, the constant striving, the struggling, the keeping up. Aren't you tired of trying to post pretty pictures on Instagram to match every other family? Aren't you tired? Just come to me. You can find what your soul longs for in me. This this isn't just a little shut-eye. This is the kind of existential rest that our souls long for. The Jews had a word for it, shalom, peace, deep inner peace. 
come to me. And he says, I'm going to give you rest. And then this is, this is big. Take my yoke. Take my way. My interpretations of everything you have ever learned about God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is a radical moment. Any other rabbi would have said, take my yoke upon you and we'll learn from the Torah together. And Jesus says, take my yoke and learn from me. You have learned. He is telling a crowd, a deeply religious Jewish crowd, who at the centerpiece of their faith is the law, the Torah, and has said that the centerpiece of your faith has been on rules your whole life and whether or not you are good enough in following these rules. But I don't want you to learn from the rules. I want you to take my yoke upon you, and you are going to learn from me. There is a new way in town. There is a new kingdom that has come to earth. And in this kingdom, we don't follow rules. We follow Jesus. This is a new world, the kingdom of heaven. And if you're like me, are you, are you like me, that you have sort of found that rules still seem to creep their way into those with religious power. Maybe that's been your experience with church. Maybe that's why you've kept church at a distance. Is that church, whenever you've gone, whenever you've stuck a toe in the water of church or faith, you've encountered someone who has made you feel like it is all about rules, then you're sure like, I am not good enough. I can't keep up with the rules. I don't even know where to start with the rules. And it is so easy, it is so easy for the church to continue even 2,000 years later to make our faith about rules. But in our world, we don't follow rules. We follow Jesus. <clears throat> rules never saved anyone. Rules didn't die on a cross for you, and rules haven't come back to life. Rules can't save you because I've got a hint to the answer to the question, is that good enough? No. But he is. But he is. Now, here, here's the kind of the tricky part about this. I mean, though this seems radical to everyone listening, we know the back of the story. And if they had paid attention in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, if you've been following along with Matthew's journey, you know that Jesus isn't saying that I'm just doing away with the Torah. You know that Jesus is saying that in me is the true heart of the law, the true heart of the Torah, the true heart of the Father, because I am not coming to abolish it. I am coming to fulfill it. If you follow me, you will follow everything God intended in the Torah. And then so Jesus finishes up with this, this really uh, unbelievable, uh, he drives this point home. It was something, a very new idea. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
How can it be easy? No, 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 my my yoke is easy. There's so many rules, not with me. You're not gonna have to worry about the rules. I've only got two big ones. Don't worry about the rules. But, But I thought discipleship was costly. I thought discipleship meant that you had to deny yourself, that to save your life, you had to lose it. That's what I thought discipleship was. And Jesus would say, well, of course. Well, that's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to live as a disciple. It will cost you everything you have. The demands of discipleship were actually way more costly than all the authority that any of the rabbis had. I'm going to tell you about how when, you know, you say we're not supposed to murder people, I'm going to tell you you shouldn't even be angry at them. You, you know, you've heard it said that, that you're not, uh, that, that if someone steals from you, you should seek revenge. I'm going to just tell you, like, if they take your coat, give them your shirt also. I'm going to up the ante of what that is. But that's, that's what it means to be a disciple, live as a disciple. But it's so easy to become a disciple. It's so easy to become one. And you've learned your whole life that you can't even be a disciple unless you follow all the rules. And maybe you thought you couldn't be a Christian unless you followed all the rules. Or you couldn't come to church unless you followed all the rules. You couldn't be righteous unless you followed all the rules. And Jesus is ushering in a new era of grace and a new era of salvation where righteousness is not earned and righteousness is not given and righteousness is not deserved by rule following. That righteousness is just, just just completely showered on us in his grace. It is so hard to follow the rules, but it is so easy to say yes to Jesus. Jesus made the hardest thing in the world the easiest thing in the world. The hardest thing in the world is to be righteous in God's sight. The easiest thing in the world is just to say yes to Jesus. That's why it's easy. Those are welcome words to someone like Matthew. To someone like Matthew, he would have thought it was exhausting and impossible to catch up. You know, maybe, maybe John didn't write this down because he had been a pretty good Jew. He'd been really faithful. He'd made it all the way to at least a 15, and he had at least memorized the scriptures. His family was pretty faithful. Maybe this wasn't a big deal to Luke because he was so educated, and you know, maybe he had even gone further in his studies. He'd at least learned how to be a medical doctor as, as he served as a physician. Maybe it wasn't a big deal to him. But to Matthew, somebody who had turned his back on his faith and left Judaism long behind and probably dropped out of religious school and didn't, didn't even know what the rules were and hadn't memorized the law, and to someone like him, the hurdles seemed so high that he could never, ever measure up. And to change his behavior at this point in his life and to figure out, is this good enough? Am I doing it right enough? Can I light a candle or not? Was it three quarters or two thirds of a mile? I forget. To to Matthew, it was welcome words to hear something that he could absolutely do. Come to me. And I bet Matthew's hand shot up and said, I'm in. I'm in. And I want you to know the same invitation is available to you. You're invited. You're invited. I know some of you are thinking like, oh man, you don't, you don't know, <laughs> you don't know my past. I, I've broken a lot of rules. 
Carter and a few laws. <laughs> You're invited. Carter, I've <clears throat> I got a couple of divorces under my belt. Okay. You're invited. Oh, Carter, you don't know what I did when I was 16 and I was so ashamed and my whole family knew and my whole town knew. Okay. You're invited. Carter, you just don't know what happens in the dark when nobody else is watching. Okay. You're invited. Carter, if you... Ooh, if you could look at my browser history. Okay. You're invited. You. Because the whole point is that none of us are good enough. And Jesus ushered in a brand new kingdom of heaven to look eight billion people in the eye and say, you don't have to follow rules. It's not what this is about. Follow me. You're invited. And all you have to do is one thing. Say yes. I'm in. Aren't you exhausted? trying to keep up? Aren't you exhausted trying to put on an act for the whole world? Aren't you exhausted? You're invited. And I believe if you would just say yes to Jesus, your soul could take the long nap it has so needed. And you will find rest. With all your scars, and all your warts and all your mess and all your past, what we long for is to know that despite all that, we are still loved and invited to the table. And that is the kingdom of heaven that Matthew tells us Jesus ushered in once and for all. Heavenly Father, thank you that we're invited. God, we're all a little bit like Matthew, probably more than we are like John. Lost our way a time or two, made some mistakes on the journey. And thank you, God, that we're still invited. We never dreamed that being made right before you could be the easiest thing in the world. I want to pray, Lord, for those in this room today, for those watching at home who haven't said yes to you, that today they would. That today they would realize that none of us here want to invite anyone to follow rules. We just want to invite everyone to follow Jesus, the Savior of our souls, who died for us and gave himself up for us and lives again so that we might live in him.
In Jesus' name, amen.